Y Group invites all AEC industry leaders to the 2024 AEC Small Business and Entrepreneurship Forum, the premier event for small firms in the AEC sector. Experience innovative strategies and insights on May 21st, crafted by Zweig Group's industry experts. Engage in keynotes and interactive sessions focused on recruitment, retention, and business growth. Join Zweig Group for this unique networking opportunity and take your business to new heights. Secure your spot today and be part of the AEC industry's future. Visit ZweigGroup.com for more information. The Zwei Group team looks forward to welcoming you. Welcome to the Zweig Letter Podcast, putting architectural, engineering, planning, and environmental consulting advice and guidance in your ear. Zweig Group's team of experts have spent more than three decades elevating the industry by helping AEP and environmental consulting firms thrive. And these podcasts deliver invaluable management, industry, client, marketing, and HR advice directly to you, free of charge. The Zweig Letter Podcasts, elevating the design industry one episode at a time. Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and I'm excited to be with you today. I have Brian T. King with me who is the founder and CEO of AM King. They are a leading integrated design build firm headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina with offices in Greenville, South Carolina and Chicago, Illinois. Brian, how are you doing today? I am doing wonderful, Randy. Great. And thanks for having me on your podcast. I appreciate it. I, uh, I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to uh, having a good conversation with you. Yeah, no, I am too. I mean, we had we had some technical difficulties at first, but that we finally got it worked out. And you know, that's kind of the nature of the beast these days. Everybody has gotten used to um, meeting virtually to, uh, you know, Zoom has become their best friend. And I think we all, we all are, are clamoring for that face-to-face connection once again, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've actually, as much as possible, and, and obviously from a safe perspective, I'm trying to have more and more personal meetings as you know, over the last six, eight months or so. And and it just makes such a difference. It, it really does. I mean, look, the, you know, prior to the pandemic, I didn't know what Zoom or Teams or any of these other apps were. I didn't know what they did. And, and uh, you know, we all had to go through that learning curve and they're great, right? I think they're, they're changing business. They're changing how we communicate. But to a large extent, there's no substitution for the face-to-face, the personal interaction especially from a business perspective. It, it, just, it just provides so much more, you know, level of humanity to what we're doing from a business perspective. So, you know, we've still got some things, some challenges ahead with this pandemic and, and this, and this uh, virus, but I'm just excited, I think, like everybody to get back to the face-to-face environment. You and me both, you said a mouthful, and, and you're absolutely right. I was talking with somebody else the other day and we were talking about like how many big deals do you know that have been like closed exclusively on Zoom? And one of my friends who, you know, he he's having to go to Canada to close a deal with a client and 
you know, he's thankful that the, the Canadian government has opened up the borders again so he can actually do that. Otherwise, this deal would have not happened maybe six, six to eight months ago. So, you know, I think uh, we have to be thankful for the little things. And, and like you said, it, once we can get through this pandemic, I think we'll all be the better for it. Oh, yeah. You know, we uh, we actually, I guess, for lack of better words, consummated the, a deal the first time we've done it. And we did it all virtually. It's a project down in Laredo, Texas a fairly large project and with a client that we did not know. We did not, most of our work is for existing clients, but this is a company we did not know that had, had sought us out and uh, we started having conversations and we went into preliminary design. We went into from their schematic design. We went into budgeting, really the entire project planning process, all virtual. And we didn't meet face to face. So we were down there breaking ground this, on this project. And, and, you know, I first started, you know, my, my thought process was this is never going to happen. We we can't do this. We've got to meet, we've got it. We've got to get together and, you know, shake some, shake hands and talk and get to know one another. And it worked. And the project is now it's going to be wrapped up here in October. So, so yeah, we made it happen. So it's, it's possible, certainly possible. Yeah, well, certainly, clearly, you guys have not let any grass grow under your feet there at AM King, and and I would love for you just to share with our audience here at the at the Zweig Letter Podcast. Uh, just give us your superhero origin story, how you got started. I think you guys started the company in two thousand four, and I, I'd love for you just to kind of share your journey in the design industry. Certainly. So we so AM King is a design build firm. And we are what we call a fully integrated design build firm. And what we mean by that is uh, really, really two components go into that definition. Number one, we say if we don't design it, we will not build it. And if we don't build it, we won't design it. And we've really stuck to that philosophy throughout the, the history of the organization. And when I, when I say that we're fully integrated, what I mean by that is that we have in-house design skills and we have in-house construction skills. So we, we have both of those skill sets in-house. We certainly, we subcontract a lot of the work on the project and there are times and for certain disciplines that we go out of house for the design aspect, but we have those disciplines in-house that we're able to go to our clients and provide that full range of discipline for both the design and the construction. In addition to that, we offer what I call two right and left uh, services. Uh, on the left, we get very involved with our clients on the property analysis piece, property selection. So we go all the way from site selection to site analysis to helping them do the due diligence. We've negotiated incentives for clients. We've negotiated the purchase of, of property for clients. So we, we offer that property piece and we've, we've found that's been really valuable to our, to our client base. On the right or the, the downside of a building project, we have a facility services group. And by that, I mean is that we get embedded into a client's facility where we have teams there and those teams will provide ongoing maintenance, ongoing CapEx projects. So we really try to run the full gamut of services, if you will, for our customers from the facility perspective. The company, as you said, was started in 2004. I was one of the founders of the company. I founded it with two other gentlemen who, uh, when we, interesting story, when we founded the company, 
the other two gentlemen said, we want to be out in 10 years. We want to be done in 10 years. And on day one, we developed their 10-year exit strategy. And in 2014, we implemented that exit strategy. These are two gentlemen that I'm still very close with. They were both mentors of mine. But it made for a very clean exit strategy for when they left the company in 2014. And then I was sole owner of the company for up until December of last year. And on December 31st of 2020, the company successfully transitioned into an ESOP, an employee share, employee stock ownership plan. So now I've done another ownership transition to the company. So I'm no longer the owner of AM King, but I remain on as the president and the CEO. The other sort of interesting thing about us that's a little different is that we have a very narrow niche in terms of the type of work we do. About 8% of what we do is in the food industry. And when I say the food industry, it is in food processing, food manufacturing, cold storage, food distribution, anything really to do with the, with the making and the distrib- distribution and storage of food. The other 20% of our work is really focused on pretty high level, pretty high tech manufacturing, very specific type of manufacturing facilities, and really almost related to just a few select clients who we provide those manufacturing services for. And that's really all we do. If we build an office building, it's for one of our food or manufacturing clients. Uh, We don't do any public work. We don't do retail work. We don't do institutional work. We really just focus on on those two sectors for, for the design and build services that we provide. Well, you know what they say, you get riches, you get, there are riches with the niches, right? And and I would, I would assume that, that you have kind of been able to kind of tap into, or like they say, mine that vein in the food space. And then also on a high level with some of the high tech manufacturing that you've done, and you've kind of found your niche. Do you find that you have a lot of competition or that do the same thing that you do in the design build space? Or do you find that there are just a lot of companies that dabble in your area, but don't go deep the way that you do? Well, a little bit of both. You know, we certainly have competitors. And I, I say that, you know, when I, when I look at our true competitors, people that do what we do, I run out of companies before I run out of fingers. So, and we're a national company. You have to be in, to be able to do what we do. So, even though we we're based in Charlotte, we have the, the the Greenville and the Chicago land offices that that you mentioned. Since the inception of the company in 2004, I think we've worked in about 30 states. And presently, if I were to tell you where we're working, it would be states all over the country, all the way as far west as Texas, as far northeast as Connecticut, all the way down to Florida, out in the Midwest, everything sort of in between. So you know. So we certainly have competitors, and it's, it's interesting. I know my competitors. They know us. We know each other very well because we really are such a niche market. Now, there are companies that, as you so accurately put it, dabble in what we do. And, you know, we, I don't mean to sound presumptuous, but we don't really consider them true competitors. You know, what we do is a niche market because it is very specialized. It requires a very specialized skill set. It requires a very, you know, specialized knowledge base. So, you know, we we don't really consider those folks that try to dabble and come in and do what we do here and there for a project here and there 
as a true competitor? Could they take some work away from us? Yeah, absolutely. They could. But I will tell you the majority of the time when one of our potential customers uses a company that's not you know, trained and knowledgeable in this type of work, they, they usually come to regret it. So as, as a general rule, you know, the companies that we work for are, are very sound, very solid, good reputation companies, and they know to seek out a company like ours to provide their facility, their facility design, construction, their site selection, or, or even their facility maintenance type of projects. Well, okay. And that makes, that makes perfect sense. I want to continue in this flow of conversation, but I want to back up for a minute because I think it does apply to your origin stories here. I know you're a Gator. You went to the University of Florida. You got a degree in building construction. But it's my understanding that you really cut your teeth right at the start of things in terms of, you know, not being, you didn't have a cushy office job. I mean, you, you literally dug ditches when you first got started in the industry space. And I'd love for you to just kind of speak about how that kind of helped you become who you ultimately have become over the years, right? Because I mean, you're, you're a seasoned executive. People seek you out for your advice. You are training and leading up and professionally and personally helping to develop a lot of the next generation of design build professionals. But what was it like for you at the beginning there back in Florida when you were doing all that work? Very unglamorous work, I might add, of digging ditches. But did you envision yourself being where you are today? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious as to who you've been talking to <laughs> and getting some of this information. Well, so, I do my homework that, now, you a, know. This is... <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I get the opportunity to speak a lot to, at universities, and I love speaking to, to college students, especially the ones that are like a year or right on the cusp of graduation. And I tell that story a lot, and it's really a story that's very applicable, I think, to that age group, because I'm sort of relating, you know, where I was at that time. But, but so. So, yeah, I'll, I'll go back in the history a little bit. So, you know, my dad was a barber and my mom worked for the railroad. And so I, I came out of this sort of unique household in a way. And then I had one parent that was an entrepreneur, always had his own business, right? A barber has his own business and that's the barber shop. My mom working for the railroad, big corporation, right? Everything's sort of there for you. The benefits are there, the, you know, the, nothing's guaranteed, but, you know, it's a pretty safe job. And, and, and I really saw, however, you know, the pros and cons of both the corporate world and the entrepreneurial world. So uh, anyway, I was, I was in college. I think I was in first summer out of college and I was not doing well at school. I was never a good student. And I I say that to your university students as well. I, I was not academically blessed or maybe I just didn't work very hard. I don't know. One or the other, but, Summer had started and I was in my dad's barber shop and I did not have a summer job. And the gentleman who built our house walked in and, and we started talking and he said, what are you doing this summer? And I said, well, I'm looking for a job. And he said, well, it doesn't look like you're looking really hard right now because you're sitting here in your dad's barber shop. And he said, show up tomorrow. And he gave me an address at 7 a.m. And he said, I'll put you to work. So he said this in front of my dad. And I couldn't say no. I couldn't say, no, I don't want to do that. So I go out the next morning and I show up and he hands me a shovel and he says, you know, we've got some work to do. And I started digging up. This was in Jacksonville, Florida. And I started digging in the ditches for a, an irrigation line of a house that he was finishing up. So, so I tell people, 
I am one construction guy, executive, however you want to term me, that did genuinely start his construction career digging ditches. That was the very first thing I did when somebody actually paid me to do construction. I sort of fell in love with the construction aspect. I, I fell in love with the thought process of building buildings and how they come together. And, and you know, I just thought it was amazing that you could go out in this open patch of land and, you know, you walk away a few months later or a year later and there's this building. And how does that happen? You know, how do you make that happen? How do they know where to put stuff and how do they know what goes next? And, you know, I, I, that was just so interesting to me. But I went through the, the school thing and I was going to get a business degree. And I was actually getting ready to transfer to a college in uh, University of Central Florida. I had been admitted and I was going to go in their business program. And a buddy of mine came home for Thanksgiving and we went out and, and you know, to just go out and catch up. And, and I said, well, what are you doing? He was at University of Florida. And I said, what are you doing? And he says, I'm in their building construction program. I'm getting a, a degree in building construction. And I said, wow, you can, I mean, you can get a degree in that? I, I didn't think you, I just thought if you wanted to be in construction, you had to be a carpenter or, you know, a, a steel worker or something of that nature. And he said, no, no, they offer a degree in it. It's a great program at University of Florida. And long story short, you know, for some reason, they let me in. I don't know why. I did not have the greatest GPA, but they let me in. And, and it was actually a pretty hard program to get into. So I graduated from that program in the mid-80s. And I went to work for a, uh, a company called McDevitt & Street, which at the time was a very, was a North Carolina-based company. But I went to work for them in Orlando, Florida. And they, uh, they were gracious enough to give me an opportunity in their Orlando office as an estimator. So, so yeah, that's, that's the origin of the whole, you know, the digging ditches. But throughout college, I worked construction. I was always in the field. You know, now internships tend to be in the office or if they're in the, in a, on a site, they're, they're, you know, it's an office-based position. You know, in the 80s, when I was doing it in the summers, you went out and you, you know, you poured foundations, you set forms, you carried rebar, you know, you worked. You did a lot of hard work, and, and that's what I did during my college years to not only gain the experience, but also, you know, I paid for my college doing that. So yeah. very, va- yeah. very valuable experience, and I think that really shaped me. You know, it, it teaches you how to build, I guess, for lack of better word. And, you know, that's what I tell these young people coming out of college, and that's why I use this story. I say, look, here's you're getting a construction management degree or a construction engineering degree, whatever your school's called it. But you need to know how to build. At the end of the day, you need to understand that building process. And Randy, I think that's important, whether you are a construction management degree, whether you're an architectural degree, whether you're some sort of engineering degree. You know, it's sort of like the Tinker Toy said, you need to know how things go together. You need to understand the process. And I don't think that has changed today any more than it was relevant when I came out of school in the mid-1980s or when people were getting into the, the, you know, the occupation, the construction design occupation back in the 50s, 60s, 30s, whatever it is. I think we still need to understand the process of building. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I'm glad you said that. I think we, we really do learn by doing. And I think that this is, I haven't been in this industry as long as you have. I got in in 97, but I can remember having conversations with young people that had joined, whether it was a design engineering firm or architecture firm. And, you know, one of my first questions to them would always be, have you been out to see the client? Have you actually been to the job site? 
And invariably, I would say eight to nine times out of 10, Brian, I would hear no. I have not been to the job site. I have not physically seen the space that I'm working on or that I'm responsible for doing CAD drawings for. And that always amazed me. And I know that the industry has changed a lot, but I mean, could you imagine what 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 would have, have been like for you had you not had a chance to really get your hands dirty and to see what the construction experience was really like? Yeah, I, I don't think, you know, I think that's what appealed to me for construction. I mean, I was, I was one of these young people that was really had no idea what I wanted to do. I had, you know, my brother and I were first generation college students, college graduates. And it was dictated to me by both of my parents that I was going to get a college degree. That was really important to them as as two people who came from what they came from said, you're going to get a college degree. So I, I knew I was going to graduate from college. But I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I think, you know, spending time in the field and learning the building process really elicited for me the passion, you know, that I have for this for this industry. And I, I do have a passion for this industry. I love this industry. And, you know, that, that passion has changed somewhat over the past, you know, 35 years or so. And, you know, my passion has become more about probably the people in the industry and what the industry can do for its community and for for the folks that, you know, take part in this industry. But I love this industry. And I think that all started by, you know, spending time out there, you know, in, in the hot summer sun and in northern Florida on construction projects. Yeah. You know, as, as I was looking at some of the work that you've done, you actually, the work that you guys do at AM King has a direct correlation with the affordability or lack thereof of food at the consumer level, even if you think about it, as I was looking at some of the projects that you've worked on and, you know, looking at, you, you did a huge, you've done a couple of projects and obviously these are all for o- open consumption, but you've worked with Aldi US and you've done a large distribution center for them. And uh, you also did a big project right there in the Carolinas with um, Southern Foods. And uh, as I was reading about that project, it just reminded me of how interrelated the design industry is with everything else that goes on in the world. And I think sometimes we disconnect and don't connect the dots. But as I was looking at this, I was realizing that, yeah, if you help this food company be more efficient in the way that they're able to deliver food, well, at the end of the day, yeah, they'll probably make more money, but they will also probably be able to deliver food more effectively at a more at a, a more cost-effective price point which hopefully translates to that benefiting the end user, which is the consumer, which is me going to the store to buy whatever they're selling and, you know, and other stuff. So, you know, a lot of times we don't think of the interrelatedness of the work that's done in the design industry space. We just think, oh, they just built this beautiful building or this beautiful warehouse or whatever, but there is some interconnectedness there. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and how you view the projects you do from that perspective. So, yeah, that's, that's really an interesting perspective, an interesting concept. You know, I, I kind of fell into the food business by chance. You know, when I was younger in my career, I, I started was introduced to, you know, I was just assigned to some food projects and then became more known in our company as, you know, the guy who understands the food business. And then when I started the company in 2004, I said, that's really the direction I want to take the company. I, I really wanted to have a niche-focused company on the food industry. And, and that's what we've worked to develop over the last, you know, 17, 18 years. But, you know, to your point, 
it has really brought home for us, I think, the, you know, the importance of, of what we do. And look, I mean, I get it. Our clients are in the food business because it's a profitable business for them. So let's not lose sight of that. However, you know, the, the food industry is, is one industry that we all cannot live without, right? It's integral to who we are as a society. And that was really brought home to us over the last, you know, 20 months or so, because during the pandemic, it was an essential business. Food businesses did not shut down. Restaurants shut down. But, you know, grocery stores, food distribution, food processing, food manufacturing, that cannot end. And and we all remember hearing the stories of some of the, the meat plants and some of the other protein plants that were having these horrible outbreaks among their staff, among their workers, because they had to go to work and they had to keep that plant operating. And, and I remember there was even a time period where there was some real concern in our society about, well, what happens if some of those facilities shut down? So yeah, we, we realize that we are an integral part of the food chain within our society. And I think that is why, you know, number one, you know, we, we are such a niche market in that it is such an integral piece to our society. It's such a highly technical aspect of what we do because there's a lot of regulations and a lot of industry standards around the food industry. You have the USDA, you have food safety requirements. You know, the, the consumer depends upon food to be affordable, certainly, but more importantly, they depend, depend upon their food to be safe. They depend that their food doesn't have pathogens, doesn't have, you know, bacteria that, that, that when they go and they, open up that chicken or that can of, you know, beans or whatever, that that food is suitable for human consumption. And that's a big part of what we do every day is work with our customers and our clients in regarding the food safety piece. So to that extent, we take our jobs very, very seriously. And we take that responsibility very seriously. And, and we also take a lot of pride in the fact that we feel we are, as I said earlier, an integral piece of the whole food supply chain to the consumer. You know, on the affordability piece, a lot of people don't know this, but the food industry works on very small margins. And, you know, the ability to produce food at a very low cost or very efficient cost is very important. It's not just important for the manufacturers, but it's important for the consumers as well. So we are constantly being challenged by our customers and our clients to look at what we call efficiencies. How can we do something more efficient? How can we add some value to their production chain, to their distribution chain, to their transportation chain to allow them to save costs? And I will, I will tell you, you know, the food companies I've dealt with over the years, and there have been many, those costs are passed along to the consumers because they have to be, and, and that's what the consumer expects. So there's, again, you know, to recap, two very big elements. There's the affordability piece, and then there's the food safety piece, and making sure that, you know, not only is the food safe, but it's efficiently delivered to, you know, to the dinner table, if you will. Yeah, no, you know, you, you're, you're speaking my language in terms of just some of the challenges that have been faced during this pandemic. I literally as from where I'm recording this uh, here in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where I live, I live about eight minutes from the world headquarters for Tyson Foods, which is the second largest meat processor in the world. And um, certainly they, they very, came very, very close to having to shut down plants and 
of course, they had issues with the pandemic and all that. So these challenges were definitely had to be met head on and, and they weren't they weren't easy to deal with, that's for sure. So it's interesting to see how firms like yours have come in and been able to provide some consulting services and some advice and guidance on how best to to meet the challenges that are faced in this new environment that we're in. So, you know, yeah, it's job security, but it's I would say it's got to be interesting for you because every day there's always something new. It really is. And, you know, and, and, and look, the food industry is a wide ranging industry from there's the meat or protein. We call it, we refer to it as protein, but, you know, the meat aspect, there's obviously then the produce side of it. There's the baking side of it. You know, there's the ready to eat side. I mean, there, there's just so many different aspects to the food industry. And it's a, it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's huge, but yet in some ways it's, it's like anything else. It's also very small, you know, I mean, to your yeah. point and, and yeah, you're right around the corner from Tyson and, and, you know, they're, they're one of the biggest players in the world. And, you know, the country was concerned, well, what if a couple of these Tyson plants closed down? What's that going to mean for the meat industry? And there would have been, you know, a ripple effect, a fairly significant ripple effect through our society if that had happened. And you start realizing that and you come to the conclusion that, you know, even though the food industry is very large, in some respects, it's also very small and very specific. Yeah. What what are some of the biggest modifications or changes that you have that have been born out of this pandemic for AM King in terms of things that you guys now do differently or modifications that you've made that have actually been, you know, what we like sometimes like to call happy accidents, right? Things that just happen and like, oh my God, I I had no idea this was actually going to benefit us the way that they did. And I think for some design firms that leaders that I've talked to over the past 18 months, there've been a variety of things. I know one leader, for instance, found the time to start creating weekly videos that he would send out. And this is, he's about a 1300 person firm. And that was a difference maker for them. Never had done it before, but because of just the distancing and all of what we've had to endure with this pandemic, he started doing these social videos and putting them out on a regular basis, just some of his musings and thoughts and, you know, what he was thinking about the industry and maybe looking at things from his, you know, 25,000, 50,000 foot view that he's going to naturally have as a, as a leader of an organization. He found that to not only be cathartic for him, but he, he also found it to be truly educational and uplifting for the rest of his team. And I'm just curious for you guys, what have you implemented over these past 18 to 20 months that has been kind of a game changer for you that you're obviously it's not something that you're going to stop anytime soon? You know, it, everybody has their own story of the impacts and the effects of, of the pandemic. And, you know, certainly there's been a number of things that we have implemented that did not exist beforehand. I mean, we, we've gone to a sort of a hybrid, you know, remote work policy. We're doing a lot more via video, via the Zoom and the Teams meetings. We're traveling a lot less. I mean, being a national company on any given day, we had a number of AM King people on airplanes, you know, in airports and flying to different cities throughout the country. And, we're not doing that as much anymore. And I don't see that type of stuff going away. I, I see that, you know, now becoming a basic tenant of business. But I think for us, you know, what we have kind of learned, we as an organization are very culture focused. And it's always been really important to us to create 
and nurture a specific culture regarding who we are and how we do. And, you know, we, I think it, what we learned is that our culture is dependent upon, to a large extent, personal interaction. And that's probably what you don't want to hear during the pandemic is to say, well, we need more personal interaction. We need to get back to personal interaction. And it almost feels like, you know, it's one of those things, well, you know, we, we, that's wrong. We shouldn't say that. We should, but we've kind of come to the realization that no, we need personal interaction. That's who we are. I mean, we are, we have a, our building in Charlotte, the, the upper floor is the construction team and the lower floor is the design team. And they're separated by a set of stairs. And I think one of the things that makes us so unique and successful as a company is that we really work on that seamless interaction between our design and our operations, our construction and our operations. I mean, our construction and our design. And we started sensing that we were losing some of that by doing everything via video or phone calls. And we came to the realization that we can't run from who we are. We can't try to change who we are. And I, you know, it didn't affect us negatively. I mean, our projects cruised along and our I don't think our clients and our customers saw any difference because quite frankly, our, our work increased during the pandemic for a lot of different reasons, which we could discuss later, but our work increased. We had to hire more. So, you know, we had a lot of things going on and, uh, you know, unfortunately or, or unfortunately for some other companies, they, they weren't able to experience, but we found that we really need to get back in the office to some extent. And that was just a part of who we are and a part of how we operate, and a big part of our of our culture. But again, culture to us as an organization is extremely important. And we make an effort to not only nurture that culture, but really to exhibit that culture to our customers, to our suppliers, and to you know those we interact with in our community. So I think that for us, that was the big learning experience, is that some remote it's fine and it will it will be fine. But as a general rule, we also need to have together time. <laughs> we need to have, you know, collaboration and coordination in person to some extent. Yeah. I call it the kneecap to kneecap rule. So I mean <laughs> there's yeah, something, absolutely. There's some, yeah, there's something to be said for that. And that that's the thing I I, I so desperately miss. I, I can't tell you the number of Zoom trainings that I've done for Zweig group over the last year and a half. And as much as I enjoyed doing them, I just missed the personal interaction that I would have when I would do these live versus talking to 150 people through a computer screen. And they were effective, but they just didn't, it's just different, you know, and there's just some things that are just hard to replicate. And until they, uh, until we get uh, jacked in our brain with some type of virtual AI or, or something like that, that allows us to experience being with someone, even if they're a thousand miles away, where the technology is far away from that ever happening. I, I still say that the, the face-to-face time is the most important. So, you know, and, and I mean, it's a, you know, and it's, it's also just the, the face-to-face time, but for us, it was really, I think I tend to use the word collaboration. I mean, I, I feel you lose a level of collaboration over a video. And when I say collaboration, I'm talking about an open exchange of ideas and opinions. You know, I think the creativity's lost. So that for us is what I felt like was missing. You know, 
you go to the team's meeting and you have the discussion and you, you know, you knock down the agenda and, you know, let's address this, let's address that, let's address this. And you get from point A to point B. Don't get me wrong. You get from point A to point B. But what are you missing in that journey? You know, what, what roadside stands are you not stopping at because you're just on the interstate going from, you know, from this city to that city? The collaboration, the ability to get off on the side road and to look at things differently and to share those ideas and to have those ideas openly criticized or critiqued and discussed, I felt like that's really, I feel like that's really hard to replicate on a video call. And as a design construction firm, where we are constantly being challenged by our clients to do things differently, to come up with more efficiencies, to come up with things that are more affordable, to do it faster, to do it better. We need that level of collaboration in our business. Absolutely. And that's just part of who we are. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the sentiment that I've heard from most leaders is that, you know, it is nice to innovate, but there are some things that there's just no what's the best word to use? There, There is no substitute for it. So, but uh, no, I, I agree with you 100%. Well, as as we close out, I wanted to, I did want to bring this up because again, you there were a couple of things that you mentioned early on, and I don't want this to be lost on anyone because one of the challenges that I know working at Zwei Group in two different times, time periods, one of the situations that we always ran into, we're dealing with firm leaders that had never had an exit strategy. And I know my buddy, Will Swearingen, will appreciate this. And so will Phil Kyle, because they do a lot of strategy work and a lot of ownership transition. But I really want to applaud you guys for kind of beginning with the end in mind, right? With this idea that these other gentlemen that came on with you to start AM King said, hey, we're going to do this, but we're going to do this for a season. And that season is 10 years. And then after that, we're going to pass the baton to you. And then you're going to take it and run with it from there. Did you, in your mind have an idea that when you decided to pass the baton, it was going to be in the form of an ESOP or was that just, did that just, was that something that just kind of came up that you, you maybe had witnessed it with some peer firms and decided to do it yourself? How did that come about? So to your point, I I, I do believe you have to have an end in mind at some point and you've got to develop that early. So, you know, I'm 59 years old. So I'm, you know, some people would say, well, I was maybe a little too young the only time I would call myself young anymore, I think, but a little too young to start thinking about an exit strategy. But I disagree with that. I think that you always have to be thinking about your exit strategy. You know, when, when my two partners exited the company in 2014, it was really only about three years later that I started saying, okay, now what am I going to do? And there were a lot of things that were, were causing me to think about that. You know, we were getting qualified offers, you know, private equity or competitors, they wanted to buy us. And I, quite honestly, that was not how I wanted the direction of the company to go. I didn't want to sell the company. But, you know, I knew that, for lack of better words, that pressure wasn't going to, to end. And, and I knew at some point I'd have to make a decision. And I just wanted to think about what my options were. Secondly, and, and I, I really, I'm, this is something I really took as a compliment is that the younger management in our company started pushing me away. And from that, I don't, I don't mean of saying, Brian, we don't want you around. And so, Brian, we want to do what you're doing. We want to do more. We want to you know, continue to grow the company. We want to think about you know, where the company can be in five or 10 years. And you know, I, I looked at, at that as a testament that we've got some strong 
young you know, leaders within our organization, and I need to give them more and more responsibility, and I needed to give them a greater range on the organization. So I kind of looked at it as I really had, you know, sort of a couple of options. One was to do the third-party sale, which was not attractive. I, none of our children are interested in the business, and I'm sort of a non-nepotism type of person. So that was really not something that was appealing to me either. So it was really, you know, what about selling to the employees? And you know, there's two ways to do that. You can parcel off pieces and parts to specific employees. And all those, that's, a, that's an excellent option. I just felt our company was so, the culture of our company was so holistic, so homogenous, that I really hated to separate out and say, well, you know, this person is entitled to buy from the company. This person is not. And I, I had a couple of friends that have done the ESOP process before, and I've talked to them. And I started doing research and ultimately came back and said, I think this is the right way for us to go. And, you know, the funny thing about an ESOP is that the impact is minimal, almost non-existent to the employees. It's totally non-existent to the customers. The, the person that is impacted most by the ESOP is the person that sells, which is me. And I've learned that. I learned that as we were going through the process. And I've certainly learned that in the eight months now nine months now since we closed on the ESOP has been the impact upon me because it's a, it's a long-term process to take, you know, the sale proceeds. You have to stay with the company in a management role, but you go from being the owner that you've been for many, many years to now you're an employee and it's a total mind shift. And, and I, I actually just wrote, I did some writing for some publications here and there. And one publication just asked me to write about that process. And in that article, I said, you know, it's simple stuff like I can't say it's my company anymore because it's not. I'm actually the only employee that will never have the opportunity to own shares again within the organization based on how we how we did my uh, on how we did the ESOP. So, you know, it's a different sort of shift in how you think and and to a degree in how you act. But it really had most the greatest impact was upon me as the previous owner. But with that said. I think it was just a fantastic solution for our employees. They're excited about it. I think it's a great opportunity for them. I think they're going to do great things with this organization. So I'm excited for them and what it's going to mean for them over the next, you know, many, many years and the next generation of the organization. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I mean, and, and, you know, I also think when I think of ESOPs, I also think of just the whole expression skin in the game, right? Everybody's got some now. Whereas before, a lot of times, and especially in the design industry, and this is something that I've experienced back in the 90s too, but you know, everybody was, would just look up to the ownership and, and, and that was that. And it was like this elusive goal that you could never quite get to because you, know, you may not be invited to that principal's meeting. But as an ESOP, it's a much different situation because everybody has ownership and you know, all the way down to the, the person answering the phones. And so you know, there is there is something to be said for that. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you guys went that route. And, and I think that your firm from a longevity perspective is going to be the better for it. And you, you know, you, you will have benefited as well. So, and it will be your legacy, which to me is as important as the gold that we earn in our lifetime. I think our legacy is, is right up there with that. No, I, you're absolutely right. I, I think that, you know, the, the skin in the game comment, and I have, Notice that among the employees. 
that, you know, they, they teased me. I think one of them told me the day, so, you know, now we can fire you, Brian. And I said, well, that's actually not true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still the CEO of the company, so I still have a little bit of power. But, you know, it, the point being is they're saying, look, we realize now that we have a different level of responsibility. And, you know, the success of this company is going to have a direct impact upon our pocketbook, you know, in, in the future. And look, an ESOP, it's not a, it takes a long time for the value of the company to build up. I mean, I mean, when I started my company in 2004, I mean, I went a whole year without a salary and it took many years for me to build value in that company. And it's going to take them a number of years to build value as well. But by the same token, you know, I think there is a greater level of, I'm going to use the term ownership or owning it. And I mean that more in the figurative sense, although it applies in the literal sense as well, but in the figurative sense is that we own this. And so, you know, the way we interact with our customers, the level of attention we give to our project, you know, the focus we put on cost and on quality and on schedule and, you know, how we maintain the culture, those take on a little bit different level of importance, I think, to everybody within the organization. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Man, I could talk to you all day long, Brian. This is this has really been good. And I appreciate, I mean, you gave us levels of information, both from, you know, you're starting out in the ditches, digging those things back at the University of Florida and, and how you kind of got involved in the, the, actually almost accidentally got involved in the construction space and look where it has, has, has taken you to new heights. And because of that, not only have you, you've been able to be a blessing to your family, but you have all of your employees and 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 what they've been able to do. So I, I really applaud you. And and I was going to ask you, what's if 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 people want to get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that? But you actually have a great website, and it's it the website is just I want to encourage everybody to go there. It's just Brian T King, all one word dot com. You can learn all you want to learn about Brian, um, about his perspective on on running a successful design firm. Um, you can connect with him there. You can link up with him on Instagram, on Twitter, on on um, uh, and LinkedIn, and, and just learn a little bit more about some of his insights. And I'm going to go a step further by saying that I'm going to get with the editors of the Zweig letter because we need to get you to write a couple articles for the uh, for Zweig Group's The Zweig Letter, which is the namesake of this podcast. And hopefully we I'll be able to twist your arm to get you to consider doing that. But I've I've seen your writing and I don't think it's going to be much of a stretch for you. Well, I appreciate that. Those are very kind words. And thank you for the plug, if you will. I mean, the writing that I do and, you know, whether it's a blog or whether it's an article, I do not do it for profit purposes. I'm not, you know, that's not what I'm doing. I do it because I really enjoy sharing ideas and opinions and thoughts. I would love to do something for the Zweig letter. You know, so certainly we can look at look at something you know along those lines. But uh, absolutely, but, absolutely, uh, yeah. I I didn't want to put you on the spot, but I, I I was already in the back of my mind. I was already like, I'm going to get with the editor, and and I'm going to say, hey, I've got another writer for you. But we'll figure something out. But Brian, thank you so much for for coming on this Wide Letter podcast and and sharing your background and experience. And I think it's nice that we're able to bring different leaders in from different sectors of this of our industry that have had success and have been able to do things the right way for a sustained period of time. So I'm glad that at the young age of 41, that you decided to start AM King 
and look where we are today. So thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Randy, thank you for having me. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it as well. I'm like you, I could talk for hours. So, uh, so thank you so much for letting me be your guest. I appreciate that. Awesome. Well, there you have it, folks. Another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed that. To learn more about one of the oldest newsletters in the design industry by visiting thezweigletter.com. You can read articles online. You can listen to this podcast and sign up for a free subscription to the newsletter and have it delivered right into your email inbox every Monday morning. And who knows, one Zweig Letter article soon might feature our current guest today, Brian King. But I want you to sign up today for that free subscription to the Zweig Letter newsletter. For more information about Zweig Group's advisory services or any Zweig Group publications, visit zweiggroup.com. You can subscribe to the Zweig Letter podcast wherever you listen to it. And please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and we'll see you soon. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Zweig Letter podcast. We hope that you can be part of elevating the industry and that you can apply our advice and information to your daily professional life. For a free digital subscription to The Zweig Letter, please visit thezweigletter.com slash subscribe to gain more wisdom and inspiration in addition to information about leadership, finance, HR, and marketing your firm. Subscribe today.